All right, if you would be turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, we'll be in verses 16 through 25 this morning. If you've been keeping up with the devotional, you may recognize, wait a minute, this is only supposed to be verses 16 and 17. Well, we're combining this week and next week so that uh, Travis and Laura Sawyer are going to be with us on the 10th. They're missionaries that we support from Kenya, and they, Travis will be preaching and sharing with us what they've got going on in Kenya on the 10th. And so we wanted to create some space for them to be able to be with us. And so we're just compressing the, the two together. Uh, I promise it won't be longer as a result. This may be longer because it's me, but uh, anyway. All right, uh, as you're turning there, here's the key truth for this morning. Our justification through faith alone, and this is such a key word because we've heard these other words so much that I want this word to really stand out to you. Our justification through faith alone rests on God's grace alone granted in Christ alone. Let me read that again. Our justification through faith alone rests on God's grace alone, granted in Christ alone. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Romans chapter 4, verses 16 through 25. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he being Abraham, believed against hope, and he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised." That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, being God, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we're coming to the conclusion of Abraham's example, that that Paul is trying to show us that if it's true of the grand patriarch who is the father of us all, then it must also be true for us. And remember that what, what we have learned thus far is that the law can't save us. This is why he comes in and says, that is why. We would have to go back and look at verse 15 for just a moment and remember that the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And so he's saying, this is why the law cannot be what our hope rests in, because it cannot save us. If, as he said earlier in that passage, it was up to the adherence of the law for the promises to come true, then all of that stuff is null and void. Why? Well, because as he had previously helped us to see from Scripture when he put together that tapestry of awfulness uh, in Romans 3, 9 through 18, we can't please God. 
And we know that from our own experience. There's nothing that we have done that's perfect. And so this is why the opening question that I have for you is, on what does your confidence or hope rest? See, for many of us, if we're honest, our confidence and hope has rested in lots of different places other than God. How many of us have said, if I can just get this finished, everything's gonna be better? I remember one time when I needed a a third job and I had applied for a job at UPS off of Fulton Industrial Parkway and it was a midnight shift gig and really that's not even wholly true. It was like from 12 to four or something odd. It was this what they call twilight shift. And so it was loading, uh, loading trucks all night long and you had to get the zip codes right which is a really easy thing to do from 12 to four uh, when, when, if you know anything about the state of Georgia, we have, I think, more zip codes than any other state uh, in America. Like, we have an, an insane amount. I still remember the zip code for Zebulon, but I won't share it with you. And so, uh, so I just, I kept thinking, and, and the reason I thought it was going to change my life, now you're laughing at this, is I was going to be making eight bucks an hour. And one dollar of that eight was going to be towards school, and that was just going to change everything. And guess what didn't change? Well, it did change, <laughs> but not for the better necessarily. Uh, there are, uh, my, wife, my wife and I joke about the number of years that I spent working midnight shift. I, I've lost some years both then and sometime in the future because it just reduces your life expectancy in some measure. It takes from you what cannot be put back. Because I would go sometimes for 36 to 48 hours without sleep. Not because I was so excited to be alive, I couldn't close my eyes, but it it was survival. It was how the work would line up or school. I was also in school full time. And so at Georgia State, who almost beat Auburn yesterday, uh, (laughs) lament, pour something out. Uh, And so so, uh, often we think if I can just get through, or some of you have maybe thought this, if I can just get married, my life will be so much easier. Married folks. Is that true? Don't be cynical. Just be honest. It's not. It's better in some ways. It's beautiful. There's ways in which it sanctifies and shapes you. But if your your hope, if your confidence rests in that that other person is going to make you uh, into something better without hurting you, you are lying to yourself. How many parents said, if I could just have a child, it'll make everything better. If I could just get a child that doesn't sleep, that screams all the time, that's that's colicky, that doesn't obey. Uh, If I could just get one of those, my life would be so, so, so much better. And, And is it fair to our children to place that much pressure on them, our confidence, our hope, given their fallenness? It's not fair. And, you know, we could go on and on. If I could just get to a church that, that sings songs in a certain style, if I could just get to a church where there's a, uh, this, this great group of people who are, who are uber-missional and, and always gracious and, and always pick up the tab, that would be great. That would just change everything. But see, that's putting our confidence and our hope out there somewhere and trying to rest it on that which is most unstable, which is those who are fallen being transformed in the image of Christ, hopefully, uh, but, but all the same, not near as stable as resting in uh, and having our confidence and hope rest in the finished work of Christ as firm foundation. 
you know, the passage where he says, if you build your house on the rock, meaning Christ's finished work, storms will blow and, and floods will come, but you will hold fast. Everything else, as we sang, is sinking sand. And so this is very important to us. And, and notice what, what Paul has, has been doing is, is he gave us a lot of the bad news in one through three, and he didn't really say a lot about Jesus. Really have only that at the end of chapter three, Jesus is introduced in, in some form or fashion. He shows up again here, but from here forward, we're gonna get a lot more grace and a lot more Jesus. What a beautiful transition. So we wanna pay close attention to this passage because it's the gateway into the rest of the beauty of Romans. And so uh, as we step into the passage, as it says, that is why it depends on faith, as we pointed out, that uh, points back to verse 15 and the law's inability to save us. And he says, uh, in order that the promise may rest on grace. Let me pause for a second. N notice what all the word rest can mean. To rest actually means to, that it's firmly secured, meaning that it's not, it doesn't, it's not being toppled. It's not something that can be done away with. It, the promise in God's hands because of his sovereignty, his power, his goodness, and later, as we'll pick up on, his ability to call forth death from life and eternity from nothing makes it possible for our faith to rest in this grace. And it also means to be able to rest in the sense of the word that is important to the Lord's Day Sabbath, that we uh, can, can lay aside our shame and guilt, that the war is over. You do understand that when Christ was crucified and he rose from the grave, that the war was over. That ended it. Now, it's still playing out in real time, and Satan hadn't gotten the memo in full, and the principalities and the powers of darkness are still thrashing about doing whatever damage they think they can do to the best of their ability. But amazingly, gloriously for us, the war is over. If you are in Christ, you are sealed in eternity. Colossians 3 makes it very clear that your life is hidden on high with Christ, who's at the right hand of the Father, secure until he returns and it's revealed in full. That is good news to us. That is something that we ought rest on. Too often we're resting on either our failures or we're trying to rest on the good that we can do or we're trying to rest on what somebody else can do for us, right? Too often we are trying to place our hope, our faith in all of the wrong places. Praise be to God that we are forgiven and that that can be sanctified and transformed in us. And he goes on to say, this is also good news as well, so that it rests in the grace of God and it is guaranteed to all our offspring. Now, this is important. This is not universalism. It's not saying, because he's going to say in Romans chapter 9, just because you are born of Abraham doesn't make you of Abraham. It is an issue of the spirit and faith. It's a different transformation. But this is good news to us as parents because it means that our children are not going to get a different goalpost. It doesn't move. It is the same faith that saved Abraham, that saves us, that will save our children. It is the same grace on which it rests for Abraham and for us and for our children, our children's children. As a grandparent, I had to throw that in there. And so it is very important that we recognize the beauty of this truth that it's not changing because how much that we've tried to place our confidence in, our hope in, how much do, do the worldly things change? 
and are ever-changing and cannot be rested upon or trusted to remain. It's amazing when you think about how many changes in such a short period of time, any, you do any reading of history, and, it, and I know that we, we think, oh, it's happening faster for us now than ever in history because we're just arrogant and we got to think we're the best at something. But this has just been true every time there was a major technological leap, but there was also just changes all the time. Nothing gold can stay, to quote Robert Frost. And so we cannot place our hope in those things and we cannot ask for those things to save our children because it's just ever-changing. But praise be to God, we have a firm foundation in Christ. We have a, a father who loves us. And again, grace is another one of those terms that, that like unconditional love, we struggle to appreciate and understand because we don't do it. Remember, grace is to receive that which is not merited, but even more, that which actually is a blessing to you. I could give you something that was unmerited, and it doesn't mean you would like it right? But what grace does is grant us not only what is unmerited, but what is our greatest joy, what brings us life and life more abundant. It is the greatest gift of all. We don't do that kind of stuff. How often do you, unsolicited, unprovoked, uh, just buy something really nice for someone else? And give it to them and do not judge the interaction based on their response. How many times have you ever done that? Let me give you an opportunity. I'd really like a Traeger grill. I don't deserve it. I will be most grateful if you show up with it. I'm, well, I'm kind of kidding. But don't take the pressure. It is Pastoral Appreciation Month coming up or something, right? right? Isn't, that a, isn't that a religious holiday? Isn't that in the church calendar somewhere? But you see, we don't do that. Like I have, uh, on occasion, thought of other people and bought them something and gave it to them, but then I needed something back, right? I wanted to see their response. And it was, it's not all bad, by the way. You like to see them take joy in it. You don't want them to go, thanks, and throw it aside. But we don't do grace. We don't know how to do grace like God does grace which is why we need him to transform us. We don't love like God loves. We don't know how to do unconditional love, which is why we need his righteousness to make us into his image. And it allows us to display his goodness in this world in a way that it just don't make sense. But do recognize that we struggle to understand grace. Honestly, we just do because we don't do it just as we struggle with love. So it's hard at times for us to rest in something that we ourselves can't do, but that's what's critical about it, right? Only God can do this, which is why it is secure. And then Paul says something next that if you were uh, just, just kind of reading through, you would miss. If you didn't take the time to really pay attention and have it shock you like it needs to, you would miss it. Notice what Paul says next. Not only is this true for these two people, the adherent of the law. Wait, what? I thought he said that you could not adhere to the law in a way that could bring salvation. Well, what he's saying here is that's right. But some of you are going to give it a whale of a go. And so to you who have tried your best 
to please the Lord your God with your purity, your best behavior, your sexuality, your uh, tithing, your church attendance, you too can only be saved, justification, by God's grace alone on which it must rest, through faith alone and Christ alone. So he's recognizing that as much as we can say that no adherent of the law can, can get there, there will be some in our midst always. And to you, there's good news. And then there's this other person who looks a lot like Abraham, and it says, and to the one, and also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And so what he's saying is, if you remember Abraham's story, and this is gonna become critical to something Paul says later about him, there was no straight line. He messed up royally multiple times. And so not only do you have the adherent of the law, for which this is good news, the one who will try like crazy to justify their salvation or earn God's love or merit grace, you also have the one who can't get it right no matter how hard they try and all they have to bring is failure. To both of them, he says, you are redeemed in the same way. Both of you must rest in grace because the one who tries really hard, you're gonna need rest. For those of you who have messed up really bad, you're gonna need rest. And this is one of the things that we need to recognize as, as a unifier in the church. This is one of the unifying principles because if we're honest, and I won't call you out by name, there are both of these people in our midst right now. There are both of these people sometimes in the same family, right? Where do we get this term, the black sheep of the family? Oftentimes, there's also the child that every, the golden child that the black sheep can't stand, that everybody just seems to love because that child makes good grades and keeps her nose clean and wears uh, clothes that have been ironed and cover every square inch of flesh, on and on, right? Both, and this is important, parents. If you want to look like God, if you want to love your children like God the Father, pay close attention to this here. You should not laud the good behavior of your children as end unto itself. It is a gift, and it can be used for good, but you need to recognize that just as dangerous as that black sheep's bad behavior is the pride that will rise in the golden child's good behavior. They're equally lost. But one is just easier for us to manage so really, who is this about, parents? So we need to be careful that we don't send the wrong messages to our children. If you want to learn to love like God does and, and, and give grace like God does, first, you must rest in his grace. The only way to look like him is to be in his presence on a regular basis and to be indwelt by the Spirit and, and to rest on the finished work of Christ alone. And then to live out of that for the sake of our children. We do it with our family members. We do it here at church sometimes, right? And so Paul's doing this amazing thing where he's grabbing both Jew and Gentile and bringing them together and saying, hey, it's the same for both of you because, and notice he says, Abraham is the father of us all. And he appeals to scripture that we've looked at before. He says, I have made you the father of many nations. That goes back to Genesis 15. And, and again, he's anchoring all of this in who God is, in the presence of the God in whom Abraham, he believed, 
who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So, for those of us who are dead in our trespasses, which is who? Without Jesus. Who? Everyone in this room without Jesus is dead in their trespasses. That this God, on whom our, our faith ought rest in his grace, he can call forth life from you who are dead. What a gift. Who in here had anything of value to bring to the Lord as offering in order to earn his love? Who? No one. Y'all didn't sound terribly confident, and, that, and that's okay, you adherents of the law. It is the same for you too. The Lord calls forth from the nothingness of your offering eternity because of the finished work of Christ, right? That, that he can take that which is dead and that which is nothing in comparison to him and bring forth eternal life in abundance. Why would we not want our faith to rest in this God, his grace, which is unchanging and guaranteed? And he goes on, in hope, he believed, being Abraham, against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. And again, this is, Abraham was looking at the circumstances, saying, hey, you've made these promises, but I don't see it. How many of you, hearing some of the promises of God, trying to look at either your marriage or, or your children or your job or your circumstance, and you don't see a lot of evidence of hope in any given moment? Well, you too are called to hope against hope because you serve, you rest in the God who can call forth life from death and eternity from nothing. Now, is that always going to be a clean, straight line, perfect experience? Uh, no, it wasn't for Abraham. But he hoped against hope because his hope didn't rest in himself. It goes on, it says, so shall your offspring be, which is the quotation from Genesis 15 again. It says, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. And I love this parenthetical note, eh, since he was about 100 years old, it's just facts. And he also considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, which he would have understood to be a God who is sovereign. Only God can open the womb. And if she's barren, there's nothing they can do to force the issue. So his faith did not weaken because of the limitations of the circumstance. Now, it's important that we recognize this is not a call for us to just blindly claim and name things. Remember, he's basing this on the promise that had already been given to him. He was basing it on the word of God that had already been spoken, not something that rose from within himself. This is important to us. And it goes on to say, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Let me pause here for a second. Does Paul not know the story? How many of you have always wrestled with this portion of scripture and kind of wondered, oh, what's he doing here? That's a good wonderment because you, me, all of us of Western mind do not understand this. We don't have a rubric for it. See, from the Western mindset, which is ours, we tend to think of things as unwavering or strong only if without messiness or failure. That's the only way you can, for us, declare something 
to be that way. But the Hebrew mindset didn't start there, didn't think that way. In fact, the Hebrew mindset was, where do you finish? And, and really, on what did it rest? Because Paul was not ignorant of Abraham's failures. We talked about these last week. They were myriad, and they were significant. And yet, notice what Abraham does according to Paul's description. He goes on to say, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. What did he just say? He said that when Abraham messed up, which way did he run? He ran to the throne of grace. When Abraham messed up, where did he turn? To the Lord God who had made the promise, who said it rested on him in the first place, to finish what he had started. Abraham didn't rest any of his hope, any of his confidence, any of his expectations in and of himself. So when he messed up, he realized, not that God, not, this is not cheap grace. He did not think that God would just, oh, that's cute. I've still got this promise to keep. No, no harm, no foul. No, it was still costly, right? The unleashing of Ishmael and the division of the people of God has been very costly. We're still playing that out today. But what he recognized was that God would finish what he started. So even in the midst of his failures, he could give glory to God. This is something we need to learn. That when we do mess up, part of what helps us run to the throne of grace is because we are resting in that grace. Because we recognize that God will complete what he started, even though there will be consequences earthly for our sin, which is why we can't go cheap grace. We need to be able to give glory to God in all circumstances because of who he is, not who we are or whatever earthly circumstance that we have placed our confidence or hope. And so in so doing, this giving glory to God, notice why. Because he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That is why his faith can be described as unwavering because he never wavered in believing that God could do what he said he could do. Where he wavered was in his own behavior and actions in what he was called to do, which you will, you are, you have done too. You need to hear this. I need to hear this. Because too often how we react to, to things and to each other is based on poorly placed confidence and hope on shifting sand, as opposed to being able to confess our sins to one another, as James calls us to do, which is why we do a weekly confession, just at least make you do one scriptural thing each week, if you actually say it along, right? It gives us confidence to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation with each other, because it doesn't rest on our behavior. It allows us to be forgiving to one another because my confidence and my hope is not in your behavior. It is not in what you can accomplish. Now, let me just tell you, that is decentering to the pastor of a church. Because a lot of times, my confidence, my hope rests in who shows up. How many show up? What they give? Where are we going? 
How do we look to the outside world? Are we accomplishing anything? When's the last time anybody got saved around here? When's the last time we baptized someone uh, that, that it was by their choice, not just a, a covenant child, which is good too, by the way? And so a lot of times, I, I have to admit to you, I can start to look at the things of the earth, which include you. And my hope, my confidence can begin to waver, and I start thinking, man, I, I, I could probably sell doorknobs for a living, which is a terrible market, by the way. I, uh, I, I checked into it, it ain't good. So I'm not doing that. But, but I am better, you are better served when my confidence and hope rests in God's grace alone because that is a fixed and firm thing. That way I don't put all the pressure on you or myself or any of the leaders of the church or the elders to keep things going and to look a certain way. It is actually a, a church that, that, that loves God and loves people is messy. Have you paid any attention to what the first century church looked like? I don't mean the going from house to house and sharing all their money stuff. I mean who showed up and what it looked like. It was a haven for sinners, broken people. The hospitality to those who were at the margins was insane and beautiful. Sometimes I think we have lost our way in this regard, but, but not because of behavior, Right? Because we could fix that, right? We could, we could all start going and serving and doing different things and inviting people. But if our confidence rests and our hope rests in those people coming and making us feel more fulfilled, and I have served among the marginalized, you are a dead man or woman walking. They will not fulfill you. And it ain't their job to. So we are to have our confidence, our hope, rest in God, be able to glorify him knowing he will finish what he started. This is his church. It is not our church. It's not my church. And notice how he then applies this to us, Paul and the audience that he had there. He says, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, being God, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It is God the Father, which is why we emphasize at the beginning of the service, God the Father only. It is God the Father who sent Jesus. We're not being saved from God. We're being saved to God by God. And we too must place our confidence and our hope and that which he has said could, in fact, redeem and transform us, which is Christ alone. He's going to get a lot more into this, uh, the Christ alone and grace alone aspect in chapter 5, which starts next week. But here he's laid this firm and beautiful foundation calling for us to place our confidence, our hope, in God alone who can accomplish what he started. That should be uh, a, a manna and and wonderful water to weary souls such as us. If you're worried about what's happening in our country, if you're worried about what's happening in your family, if you're worried about what's happening in our world, where should your confidence and hope rest? You can't just say it. You've got to do the cultivation. You've got to get down in. It's got to be, become true. It can't just be mantra. Listen to what John Stott says. He says, the fixed point is that God is gracious and that salvation originates in his sheer grace alone. 
But in order that this may be so, our human response can only be faith. For grace gives and faith takes. I would actually say receives. Faith's exclusive function is humbly to receive what grace offers. Remember, faith is surrender. It is not an act of strength or or power on our part. It is to, to collapse in humility and recognize I cannot keep any of the promises. I cannot keep any of the law sufficiently enough for God to love me and to change this world. It is only in resting in the finished work of Christ by God's grace alone that we can actually have an impact through the love of God and the love of our neighbors. So let me ask you, what serves to strengthen your faith? And what serves to weaken it? What's interesting is how you might answer the question is probably wrong. Well, that's arrogant of me to say. I didn't even let you say something. Well, I'm anticipating, because so often we fail to recognize that, no, actually, it is in your failing that your faith will be strengthened. Why? Because think of the trap. As we accomplish things, as we are able to do good things, which, which, where does our confidence and hope begin to shift? Most of the time to ourselves. I don't know about you, but when I set out a plan for the day and I have a, my to-do list and I get through that whole to-do list, at the end of the day, I feel pretty good about myself. I give a, a wink and a nudge to God for granting me the day to impress the universe. You may say, are you that arrogant? Not really, but it'd be better if I was because that's really what's going on in my heart. But in my failings, where must I turn? Where must my confidence and my hope ultimately rest? At that point, if you have any confidence, any hope, it must be in God and God alone through his grace alone. Now, am I saying that you should sin so that grace may abound? Well, Paul's anticipating that you would say that and that they would say that, so we'll get to that in chapter six. But the answer is a resounding no. But what's the reality? You will fail. You will fail at times. You're going to mess up. You're, you're going to not speak a word fitly spoken in due season. You're, you're, you're not going to remember everybody's birthday. You're not going to give presents graciously. You're not going to love unconditionally. You will fail. And which way you run determines whether or not your faith will be strengthened in that moment. And what weakens your faith is actually you accomplishing some things sometimes, if you're not careful. It's why we have to be active. This is why Colossians 3 says that one of the results of our lives being hidden on high is that we would become uh, vigilant and watchful to mortify the sin that so easily entangles us in the flesh and to vivify only that which is Christ. This is why the Holy Spirit, one of the most powerful beings in the universe, exalts Jesus and, and points to itself not at all, which is why we find the Holy Spirit so mysterious. And there's so few passages about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's going, I'm not what's important. Christ is. And we would do well to learn how to do the same in the power of the Spirit. And so Romans 4, 16 through 25, teaches us that our justification through faith alone rests on God's grace alone, granted in Christ alone. Would you join me, church, in seeking to find greater rest in the haven of God's grace? Would you join me, church, in, in recognizing that, that, that failings are not the end of the story and not even the worst part of the story, that pride is far more dangerous than most of the sins that we could point to that all of us have committed at some time? 
And that we would recognize how good God is to save both the attempted adherent of the law and the one who ain't got nothing to bring but failure. And that we would be a church who would love both equally as we are loved in God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us this way. Thank you for your grace in which we can rest. Thank you for the firm foundation that is in Christ alone. Thank you, Father, that you would entrust such glory to earthen vessels such as us. May we be a church that grows in its hospitality. May we be a church that grows in its unity. May we be a church who grows in its confidence and hope in your Uh, in you and in the finished work of Christ. Help us, Lord, to be a city on a hill. Help us to see uh, folks come to know you for the first time. Help us plant a church or churches. Help us get excited about missions and opportunities to serve others. Help us to long for what you long for, which is to be present with those who need you and to recognize that everybody needs you. In Christ's name, amen.